everybody. Welcome back to the Lights Out Podcast, episode four. Today we're going to be talking about a very, very dark event in American history, really just a dark day in general. And that is going to be the Oklahoma City bombing, which occurred on April 19th, 1995 at the Alfred Murray Building in downtown Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. 2020 is actually the 25 year anniversary of this event. And I think it's even with events like these, it's always important to remember the people that lost their lives in this tragic event that happened. 168 innocent men, women, and children died in this domestic terrorist attack that is still one of the deadliest attacks in American history. And this particular event is especially close to Joel and I because we actually lived in Oklahoma City, not during the time of this attack actually, but a few years after. We actually lived in Oklahoma City from 1997 to 2001. So I actually have memories of this, but our father actually brought us down to the site of the Oklahoma City bombing, the you know the remains of the federal building where they had it all chain linked off. And I'll never forget, I think, God, I was pretty young at this point, 97. So yeah, I was five or six years old and you probably don't even remember this at all, but I remember going there and walking around the outside of the chain link fence around the site of this. Cause at that point there was no memorial built and it was just you know, still rubble and you know, whatever was left of the building that was there. And I'll never forget the the image in my head of walking up to this fence and just seeing all of the flowers and pictures of all the people that died in this horrific terrorist attack. Yeah, Joel, do you remember anything about going to the site? Or maybe you didn't even go with us, but what do you remember? Yeah, I I just don't recall uh, going to the site. I mean, I might have, but I just think I was too young at the time to, to realize or remember any of that. Yeah, and I mean, I don't even think I totally understood what had happened, obviously. I don't think you know, our dad told us what had happened there. But I think the main thing for me is just remembering the temporary memorial that was set up out there. So this is definitely one close to us. And, you know, it's one of those that is definitely a hard story to listen to, but it's one that I think we absolutely have to keep talking about in order to remember those that were lost in this event. We're also going to be talking about Timothy McVeigh, who is the mastermind behind this attack. But before we talk about Timothy McVeigh and the events leading up to the Oklahoma City bombing, I just wanted to say thank you guys again for supporting the show. We've had a ton of fun with this. It's been great to see your guys' feedback on everything and we're listening and we're trying to, you know, make sure we're providing the best experience we can for you guys. And we've had a lot of fun doing this as well. It's been great to work with my brother on this and, you know, him and I have definitely come closer doing this. And it just allows us, like we said at the beginning, to you know sort of follow our passions and interests and cover some of these darker stories. So thanks again for that. Anything you want to say, Joel? Yeah, thanks, guys, for showing your support. And I, I'm very excited for the future of this podcast. And it's just been a ton of fun. So thank you again. And also, I wanted to remind people, for those that are listening to the podcast on Spotify or iTunes, that we also put out a version of the show on YouTube which is a video version. So you'll be able to see us here in the studio as well as see any sort of visual elements that we add to the actual episode itself. So especially for this one, there's a lot of pictures and maps and different diagrams and things like that, that you can actually see if you watch it on YouTube. So definitely check that out. Just look for lights out podcast, but let's go ahead and get into the episode. So to start, 
we have to talk about Timothy McVeigh and try to wrap our heads around how he became such a violent individual and somebody crazy enough to build a bomb and kill a bunch of innocent people. So we start with Timothy McVeigh back when he was born on April 23rd, 1968 in Lockport, New York. And he was actually raised near Buffalo, New York in Pendleton. And he was the second of three children born to his mother, Mildred, and his father, William McVeigh. His father actually worked at the Harrison Radiator Plant, and his mother worked for a travel agency. He was the only boy out of his siblings, and his older sister was Patty, and his younger sister was named Jennifer. And McVeigh, growing up, was always tall and thin. In fact, he was nicknamed Noodle. And because of the way that he looked, he was bullied relentlessly in school because of his thin stature. And by the time that he made it into his teenage years, he had already become interested in guns and survivalism, basically became a doomsday prepper at the age of 14. And the primary reason for doing this was because his grandfather, Ed, was also into this type of thing. And it's actually said by the family that Timothy McVeigh was closest to his grandfather, and probably because he felt like he could really connect with his grandfather on the similar interests, because from a young age, Timothy McVeigh would actively work on his marksmanship. I mean, he was super into guns and he began stockpiling food and survival gear because he was worried that the communists were going to overthrow their government or there'd be some type of nuclear attack. And yeah, he was essentially a prepper. I don't know about you, but I think becoming a prepper at age 14 is probably not a good thing because if you think about it, a prepper is preparing for the end of the world and therefore your mindset changes into this sort of like always ready mode where you're anticipating the worst thing to happen. I can only imagine that during your teenage years, how much of an effect that would have on you because you're so impressionable at that age. And I know for me, like so many things had a great effect on me during my teenage years, especially anything that was conflict related or something that, you know, definitely made me angry or relationships that I had with people at the time. Definitely played a huge role in how I turned out. So the fact that he was surrounding himself with his grandfather as a prepper and all these different things, guns and survival equipment and stuff definitely will change your mindset going into your adult years. Right. Someone at that age should be living life in the moment and not have any worry about the future. Yeah, no, it's absolutely bizarre. I mean, you don't hear about that every day, a 14-year-old prepper. Not only was he becoming a doomsday prepper, though, he was also starting to read a lot of neo-Nazi literature. And he actually read a book called The Turner Diaries, which is an anti-government book that describes the bombing of a federal building in the book itself. And this book is written by a neo-Nazi named William Pierce. This book, of course, influenced him greatly, as well as his mindset towards the government as well as the constant fear that the government is tyrannical, it's going to come and take all their guns and rights away from them. So obviously he was very much a supporter of the Second Amendment to the point that he was willing to die in order to keep those rights. So Timothy, at that young of an age, already doing all of those things. I get that he was tall and skinny and was very quiet, which didn't help him at all with making friends and playing sports and all those things that you would think a young teenager would want to do. Yeah. Well, he was bullied in school. So obviously having friends was not an option for him or he, you know, he didn't try that hard to have friends. And so it definitely seems like he kind of became a recluse and pulled himself out of, you know, the life that everybody else is living 
And then he's spending all this time with his grandfather, who's obviously having a huge influence on him. And then he's getting a hold of these neo-Nazi books. So that's starting to poison his brain. And the thing about Timothy McVeigh is that he was extremely intelligent. And although he performed rather average in school, he got high scores on standardized tests in high school and actually earned a partial college scholarship due to his test scores. So definitely not a dud in the brain, but clearly poisoning it. He was super interested in science fiction, comic books, superheroes. He was also interested in computers and gaming. And obviously being into gaming, he was really into like violent video games and, you know, shoot 'em up games. But above all, he was extremely talented with the computer. He was very skilled. In fact, he was able to hack into federal installations. He was definitely a whiz when it came to hacking and just the primitive computers at the time. With these kinds of interests, it's definitely not going to make you a popular person at school. And like we said, he had very few friends in school. And in his yearbook, actually, his only listed extracurricular activity is track. And under future plans, he wrote, take it as it comes, buy a Lamborghini, California girls. So clearly did not have a lot of you know expectations for his future. And it's reported that Timothy McVeigh only had one girlfriend in his life while he was a teenager. And things were going well initially, and he introduced her to the family and everyone liked her. But eventually he ended the relationship for some unknown reason. And many believe that Timothy McVeigh died as a virgin, actually. When he wasn't working on the computers, his other passion was cars, and he would actually later sell his computers in order to invest in vehicles. But the same year that Timothy McVeigh graduated high school in 1986, his parents would eventually divorce. And after this, Timothy McVeigh chose to stay with his father, William. And it's said that after they got divorced, he literally had no relationship with his mother at that point. And after he graduated high school, he attended college for a short period of time and had a few odd jobs, but nothing seemed to stick for him. One of the things he hated about college, though, was that he didn't enjoy the fact that he was being told what classes he had to take in order to earn his degree. And he wanted to just learn what interests him specifically. After college didn't seemingly work out for him because obviously he didn't like the structure of it. He didn't like he couldn't study what he wanted to. And I think he started realizing, you know, I want to work with guns and I like the whole survival aspect of life. And I think that's the reason why he was really enticed into enlisting in the United States Army. And he actually joined the Army in May of 1988. And the Army is one of those things that it definitely sort of forces you to make friends with people. You have to obviously become close with other people in your platoon. And when you go through basic training, you spend a lot of time with a select group of people. So you get to know people fairly well. And that's exactly what happened with Timothy is that in 1988, he was going through basic training, and that's when he met Terry Nichols. And Terry Nichols at the time was his platoon leader, and they really connected because they shared a lot of the similar conservative political views, although Terry Nichols was 13 years older than Timothy at the time. An interesting side note about Terry Nichols is that his first wife divorced him in the same year, 1988, for reportedly joining the military and not telling her. And then four years later, in 1992, he would marry 17-year-old Marif Torres, whom Nichols met through a mail order bride service in the Philippines. And when she arrived at Terry Nichols home in Michigan, she was six months pregnant, but with some other guy's child. And Marif ended up giving birth to the child on November 22nd, 1993. But the baby died from accidental suffocation from a plastic bag while the child was in Terry Nichols care. That is very weird. 
I mean, for all we know, he could have murdered this child. Timothy McVeigh also made another friend, Michael Fortier, in 1988. And Fortier served in the military until 1991 when he was honorably discharged. The reason for specifically bringing up Michael Fortier and Terry Nichols is because they ended up being accomplices with Timothy McVeigh in the Oklahoma City bombing. And we'll talk about more of their involvement later. But while Timothy McVeigh was in the army, he absolutely excelled and he was promoted to sergeant. And he really seemed to enjoy the regiment and schedule and structure. He was eventually sent to the Persian Gulf War where he would earn a bronze star for his work driving a Bradley fighting vehicle for four months. And there's a few different versions of the Bradley fighting vehicle, but essentially it's an armored and armed vehicle used to transport infantry, and it looks similar to what most would call a tank. One of Timothy McVeigh's deployments during his time in the military was in Iraq, and it's been reported that he killed many people during his time there. I don't think there's an exact number that we know of, but it definitely was a lot of people. And while he was there, he started to become disillusioned with the military, and he didn't understand why he was fighting against people who seem so much less prepared than the United States military. And after he finished his tour, he was offered many office positions within the military. However, Timothy McVeigh wanted a more hands-on position. He had always wanted to be in special forces, so obviously like the Navy SEALs, the Green Berets, and he actually tried to get into the Green Berets, which the Green Berets is like one of the most elite fighting groups in the entire military, and it's extremely hard to get into it. A lot of people wash out of special forces school. And when Timothy McVeigh started trying to become a Green Beret, he quickly realized that he just wasn't cut out for the special forces and that he was just tired from his time in the Persian Gulf War. And so he decided that he was going to leave the military and he did with an honorable discharge in December of 1991. One of the main reasons why Timothy decided to drop out of the Green Berets was because he struggled during those psychological tests that were given to him. And he exceeded with the marksmanship training and all of that. But yeah, when it came to those psychological tests, he suffered. Yeah. And I think probably because his point of view, I'm sure he probably brought up the fact that he didn't understand why he was fighting and, and, you know, started raising red flags for obviously any sort of special forces. I mean, you got to be hundred percent on the same page with, you know, those guys. And if, if you're not going to be one with the mission, then they don't want you. And I think they probably noticed that for sure, that he was starting to question the government and their role there and what they were actually doing, as well as just the fact that here's a guy that's almost, a, you know, really obsessed with shooting and, and everything like that. So, you know, maybe they were starting to see those red flags and really worry about him because that's, I mean, yeah, he washed out of special forces school. And I think once they sort of booted him from that, he was like, then I don't want to be a part of this at all. And that's when he decided to leave. So after getting out of the military, he moved back in with his father, William, near Buffalo, New York, and worked as a security guard for a while, making minimum wage. His main goal is to get a job in computers, but according to Timothy, since he didn't have a degree, and obviously computers changed quite a bit over that time that he was in the military, it would take some time for him to get caught back up to speed with everything. And also with the rise of affirmative action, he was constantly passed up for these types of positions. And this became a dark time for him, and, and he really struggled with depression and thoughts of suicide. And obviously, if you're going through depression and suicide, your thoughts are going to start to get darker, and his beliefs started to get more extreme at this point. And by 1992, Timothy McVeigh totally turned on the government, 
and he started writing letters to various newspapers and government officials. And in fact, in March of 1992, he wrote a letter to the New York newspaper, Lockport Union Sun, that included the question, America is in decline. Do we have to shed blood to reform the current system? He was very angry about the way that politics was going, and obviously we're getting into the Clinton administration and you know a more liberal government. So, And he was very, very worried that the U.S. government was going to start restricting weapons and even take them away from him. And he just thought this was way too harsh, and we were getting away from what America was all about, freedom, and so he really started to turn on the government. With that being said, I wanted to read the letter that he wrote to this New York newspaper because it's fucking crazy. It says, Dear Mr. LaFalsey, recently I saw an article in the Buffalo News that detailed a man's arrest, one of the charges being possession of a noxious substance, CS gas. This struck my curiosity, so I went to the New York State Penal Law. Sure enough, Section 270 prohibits possession of any noxious substance, and included in Section 265 is a ban on the use of stun guns. Now, I am a male and fully capable of defending myself, but how about a female? I strongly believe in a God-given right to self-defense should any other person or governing body be able to tell a person that he or she cannot save their own life because it would be a violation of the law. In this case, which is more important? Faced with a rapist murderer, would you pick A, die a law-abiding citizen, or B, live and go to jail? It is a lie if we tell ourselves that the police can protect us everywhere at all times. I am in shock that a law exists which denies a woman's right to self-defense. Firearms restrictions are bad enough, but now a woman can't even carry mace in her purse. Clearly very, very paranoid. I mean, somebody that goes to the lengths that he did to write to all these newspapers and say shit like this is clearly paranoid about the government taking their right to bear arms. By January of 1993, Timothy McVeigh quit his job as a security guard and left New York to live a more transient life. He'd move around a lot and he'd stay with different friends he had met in the army. And he'd also just keep short-term jobs with a lot of his income coming from working at various gun shows across the country. And by working these gun shows, he ended up meeting a lot more people that shared his beliefs. And it also really strengthened his anti-government and anti-gun control beliefs quite a bit. Obviously, being around these types of people all the time will clearly just strengthen his positions on guns and the government. But Timothy McVeigh's beliefs really went to extreme after these two events happened that really had a huge effect on him and really just made his beliefs go to the next level. The first event that really had a huge impact on him was the Ruby Ridge incident. The Ruby Ridge incident happened on August 21st, 1992. And essentially what happened was is that U.S. Marshals went to the home of Randy Weaver in an area known as Ruby Ridge in northern Idaho, an extremely like way out there rural area where nobody else lives. There's this guy living out there just pretty much living under his own government, like not abiding by anybody's rules or the United States government whatsoever. They lived out here in the middle of nowhere. Now, the reason that the U.S. Marshals went out there was because he failed to appear for his trial for firearms charges that they had against him. And what ended up happening was, is that they were those people that were going to defend themselves from police or from anybody taking their property or coming for their guns, no matter what. They were going to die before any of that happened. And that's exactly what did happen. Randy Weaver's wife and his 14-year-old son were killed by FBI agents in the 11-day standoff. And 
he actually survived this incident and would later win a civil lawsuit against the government for the death of his family. Because the big debate there was who fired first. They had no idea if the FBI agents just opened fire on them or if, in fact, bullets came at them first. Because usually with law enforcement, there's got to be a threat towards them before they fire. But it seems in this particular case, the law enforcement agents just opened up on his wife and killed the 14-year-old son as well. Because they would all walk around with weapons, but if they're not pointing the weapon at anybody, then it's not really a threat. Clearly, this event had a huge, huge impact on Timothy McVeigh. He saw this as completely unfair as well as a giant conspiracy plot by the government in order to take Randy Weaver's weapons as well as kill his family. So really, the government was the bad guy at this point and an evil entity that needed to be taken out, essentially. But this event did not just impact Timothy McVeigh. It really started this huge conflict between the government as well as some of its citizens. Groups of people were really worried that the government was tyrannical and they were going to come for you. They were going to just shoot you. It really created a lot of turmoil between these extremist groups and the government itself. It's important to note that Randy Weaver and his family were a part of the white supremacist group called the Aryan Nations which is one of the largest white supremacist groups in the country. And they have little groups all over the place. And yeah, there was an actual compound that was not even that far away from the Weaver's residence that had a bunch more white supremacist individuals living there. And I don't want to get too deep into Ruby Ridge because we could do a whole episode on Ruby Ridge as well as the next event that really had a huge impact on Timothy McVeigh. And that was the Waco disaster. Now, for those that don't know, the Waco incident was on February 28th, 1993 in Waco, Texas. And this is a very, very famous event because it was basically a 51-day standoff between members of the Branch Davidians, which was a religious cult led by David Koresh, against the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and the FBI, and just law enforcement in general. The reason the standoff occurred at all, though, is because 80 ATF agents attempted to execute a search warrant on the Davidians' compound in Mount Carmel. And the reason for the search warrant was because they were looking for illegal weapons that they knew David Koresh had stockpiled, because the guy had bought a ton of military-grade weapons. They had grenades at all sorts of different things that they were stockpiling in order to prepare for the end of the world. Essentially, they knew that a big war or conflict was coming and they wanted to be ready for it. But unfortunately, this event did not end well. And again, this is another topic that we'll go into in much greater detail in an upcoming episode. But the way that this standoff ended was the government brought in these armored vehicles, essentially tank like vehicles, and they started tearing holes into the side of their compound because they were going to launch tear gas into the building in order to try to get people to come out because David Koresh was in there with his family and a bunch of kids and a lot of people got out of the compound but David refused to come out no matter what. The way that the standoff ended was that the Davidians poured a bunch of gasoline out all over the compound but that was it as far as we know and according to them they believe that law enforcement actually set fire to the compound and some people claim there's proof of this happening i mean it's very hard to see if in fact this is true or not according to law enforcement the davidians were the ones that actually set fire to the compound and it wasn't them so it wasn't 
their fault that this happened. But in the end, 74 men, women, and children were killed in the standoff, which is just absolutely tragic. And that was 51 days of a standoff, just firing. It's never really happened before. Right. But just, you know, police and David Koresh and the Davidians were literally in a complete firefight most of that time. The ATF did decide at one point that they were going to retreat and rethink how they were going to handle the situation. And afterwards, they brought tanks. They even set up speakers where they would play extremely loud music at all times of the night, as well as really bright lights. Uh, So no one could sleep, obviously. No one could do anything. Yeah, they really tried a lot of different options in order to get them to come out. And they negotiated with David Crush directly. I mean, I think law enforcement put forth a good effort, but at the same time, is it worth all these men, women, and children dying that you know, may, may not have had anything to do with what was going on there. So a lot of people thought there was a ton of injustice with this. And obviously this just completely electrified the radical right, especially the white supremacist movement. And it just kind of reinforced all of their beliefs. And that's exactly what happened with Timothy. It was like, this was the sort of breaking point for him. Cause he actually went to Waco and actually was outside of, of the site and witnessed what was going on there. So this upset him greatly. When he was there, he rallied with those people, the, the, the bystanders who were watching it take place. And everyone had the same belief as Timothy, just absolutely anti-government, hated how they wanted to ban guns. Timothy would sell those bumper stickers. Oh, yeah. for yeah. With political uh, sayings, I believe. Yeah, that, like fear the government that fears your gun. Yeah. And T-shirts and all sorts of stuff. Right. All sorts of different merch for the cause that they're all supporting. And I think that only added to his rage, obviously. Absolutely. And it was really at this point that he decided it was time to get the government back and strike against them. So then in April 1993, Timothy McVeigh was at a Tulsa, Oklahoma gun show, and he met an individual named Andreas Strassmeyer, who was the grandson of one of the founders of the Nazi party. He also acted as the head of security for a 400-acre compound on the border of Arkansas and Oklahoma called Elohim City. And this compound was apparently owned by a white supremacist. After that, he then traveled to Kingman, Arizona, where he rekindled his friendship with Michael Fortier, who was also a fellow anti-gun control protester. They were obviously good friends from the Army, and he actually served as his best man in his 1994 wedding. And it's reported that it was actually Michael Fortier who would later allegedly introduce Timothy McVeigh to crystal meth. Apparently, they would get high, lay on their backs, and look at the stars and share stories and vent about their anger about the government and gun control, as well as the New World Order and the plans of the United Nations. Timothy McVeigh would also create and detonate sophisticated bombs in order to entertain the Fortier family. And that's the thing is, he was a really smart individual and he learned in the military how to make bombs essentially. So this was obviously knowledge that he kept with him if he was just doing this shit for fun. Also during this time, Timothy McVeigh's other friend, Terry Nichols, had also turned against the government. In fact, he had renounced his U.S. citizenship writing to a state agency saying, I am no longer a citizen of the corrupt political corporate state of Michigan and the United States of America. 
and he would later go on to contest his credit card debt by stating that he wasn't a U.S. citizen. And obviously this argument did not work. So he was totally just done with the government and wanted nothing to do with being an American essentially because they literally feel like the government has turned on them. There's no hope. And essentially the end is coming and we need to fight back against this tyrannical government. In the fall of 1993, Timothy McVeigh and his friend Terry Nichols made their first trip together to Elohim City. And this compound was known for housing many individuals who are anti-government, and it's believed that McVeigh may have visited this compound up to four times before the attack. So he's completely surrounding himself with individuals who all share the same beliefs, and he's kind of becoming a leader in a lot of ways and kind of wanting to push the envelope a little bit and really figure out a way to get back at this government that's been so horrible to them and that caused Waco. And some even believe that in 1994, Timothy, along with other members of Elohim City, participated in numerous bank robberies across the Midwest in order to raise funds for his violent plans against the government. We know he was involved in an armed robbery of a gun dealer in Arkansas, as well as him and Michael Fortier also robbed an Arizona National Guard armory because they had to get weapons somehow, and so they would steal them. And it's reported that at this point, McVeigh had reportedly turned his Arizona home into a bunker and also renounced his United States citizenship and began making bombs, all the while increasing his use of methamphetamine. Not a good combination at all. Clearly, he's losing his mind. His his belief systems are totally fucked up. He thinks the government's after him. And not only that, he's infusing all of that with methamphetamine, which is only going to make paranoia worse. It's only going to make your views more extreme. Your, Your view of the world is going to become very, very skewed at that point. In July of 1994, Timothy authored a letter to his childhood friend, Steve Hodge, stating, I have sworn to uphold and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and I will. I have come to peace with myself, my God, and my cause. Blood will flow in the streets, Steve. Good versus evil. Free men versus socialist wannabe slaves. Pray it is not your blood, my friend literally like threatening his friend. I mean, that's that's a scary letter to get from anyone, but from a friend just out of the blue basically saying like if you're not with my beliefs then you're my enemy essentially and blood's going to flow in the streets. Clearly, he's probably in crystal meth when he's writing this cuz he's making no sense whatsoever and he's just totally adopted this extreme view of the world and the government. So shortly after this, in September of 1994, Timothy McVeigh began planning his attack on the Murray Federal Building in Oklahoma City. I believe Timothy was targeting that specific building because the ATF who were involved with the Waco incident did have a few offices there. Yeah, yeah. And after the tragic incident at Waco, Timothy felt like he had to bring the ATF revenge. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's other government offices there. I mean, clearly he wanted to hit a government site and he had a bunch of other different targets that he was considering as well. I think he realized that a lot of those other ones were better defended. I mean, if he was going to go after, you know, somewhere in Washington or, you know, one of the big sites, it'd be a lot harder to pull something off, but it definitely makes sense why he targeted the Murray federal building. Cause 
the ATF who were involved with Waco were there, as well as other government law enforcement that was there as well. And the reason I think he started planning the attack in September of 1994 was because the assault weapons ban had just been passed. And this was clearly just one of the switches that were flipped for him that really made him believe that the government was coming for his weapons and his rights because now they're banning assault weapons. And obviously he loves assault weapons. So this really worried him greatly. So on September 22nd, he rented a storage unit in Harrington, Kansas that would be used to store the bomb components. And one week later, Terry Nichols purchased a ton of ammonium nitrate, which is an ingredient that they would use in the bomb itself. But I believe this is a f- used in fertilizer. So they essentially went and bought a bunch of fertilizer from, uh, I think like a feed store or something. And it's actually one of the pieces of evidence that we have that links him to the bombing itself is there's a receipt for all of the ammonium nitrate that he purchased. I mean, he purchased a ton of it. And obviously he had to purchase that from a bunch of different stores. So it wouldn't cause any suspicion. I know that Timothy and his accomplices all work together to buy those different ingredients for the bomb. Yeah. In order to avoid suspicion. Right. And they, they did make a lot of phone calls to different states and really scattering that out as much as possible. Right. Because if you did get it all within Kansas or in one location, obviously the authorities are going to, somebody's going to tip the authorities off and, and they would have thwarted their plans to make the bombs themselves. October of 1994 was a very busy month for the crew. Terry Nichols purchased another ton of ammonium nitrate and then him and Timothy McVeigh robbed a quarry for dynamite and blasting caps. And then in that same month, Timothy purchased close to $3,000 worth of nitromethane, which is typically used as fuel in race cars from a local racetrack. And at this point, Timothy McVeigh is also making trips to Oklahoma City to check out the building, as well as to start making plans for the position of the bomb and where it would be detonated. It's also believed that Michael Fortier accompanied Timothy on at least one trip to case the Murray Federal Building. But when it actually came down to it and time to put the plan into motion, Michael Fortier started having second thoughts and even reportedly asked Timothy, what about all of the people? To which Timothy said, think of the bombing like a Star Wars movie and consider all the victims to be like stormtroopers, the bad guys. He also said that they are guilty because they work for the evil empire. That's a crazy fucking analogy to make for real life just shows where his fucking brain is at this point. However, Fortier insisted that he wanted no part to be in the Oklahoma city on the day of the bombing. And Michael was also threatened by Timothy. If Michael did not give his cooperation for the full plan that Timothy had, Timothy straight up told him, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to kill your family, making all sorts of death threats. And that's crazy because Michael is one of Timothy's best friends. Like what what yeah, friend would I know, do that? right? Yeah, yeah, desperate. I mean, he's Very. desperate at this point, and he he knows he needs help, but at the same time, I mean, he's going to go through whether or not people are on board with him or not. I mean, I think at this point, he's convinced himself that I'm going to carry out this attack, and you're either in in it with me or you're not. And if you're not, then you know I'm going to make you pay as well. At this point, we know that Michael Fortier and Terry Nichols were accomplices and helped. Timothy plan out this attack as well as help him build the bomb. There's also evidence to suggest that many people at the Elohim city compound 
also aided in the bomb plot. Carol Howe, an ATF informant who worked undercover at Elohim City, stated that members of the compound, Andreas Strassmere and Dennis Mahan, made the first trip to Oklahoma City to scout possible targets for the bomb. Although the ATF was aware and alarmed by the plan, as well as making arrangements to raid Elohim City to prevent the attack, after a February 1995 meeting between the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office, the raid was called off. This is very alarming because this suggests that perhaps this attack could have been prevented or stopped altogether. But for whatever reason, the FBI and the United States Attorney's Office decided not to go forward with the raids in order to figure out more. In March of 1995, Terry Nichols backed out of the bomb plot completely. And many people believe that Timothy McVeigh continued to turn to those at Elohim City as well as other white supremacist groups across the country in order to help him carry out this plan of his. So with Timothy McVeigh's accomplices, Michael Fortier and Terry Nichols, seemingly starting to step back from this whole bomb plot, there's a lot of speculation and a lot of theories around, was there somebody else involved on the day of the bombing itself? And there's been an individual who people claim to have seen who we call John Doe number two. And there's a lot of debate with John Doe number two because we don't know if he actually exists or not. And the government denies that he ever existed. But according to phone records and other evidence, it seems like Timothy McVeigh was in contact with somebody at this Elohim City compound, somebody involved with this Aryan Nation Brotherhood who may have been helping him on the day of the bombing itself. But then again, there's just no way to know for certain if there was somebody else or if Timothy McVeigh carried this all out on his own. But what we do know is that Timothy McVeigh did construct a bomb and we don't even know to this day what exactly was in the back of this truck that he ends up renting in order to transport the bomb. But according to the plans that he showed to Michael Fortier and his wife Lori, it depicted a bomb made from 5,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate fertilizer, 1,200 pounds of racing fuel, and 350 pounds of Tovix, which is a water gel explosive, including the drums used to house the bomb, which all of that weighed 7,000 pounds in total, all packed into the back of this moving truck. So a huge, huge explosive. At this point, we've now arrived to the tragic day of April 19th, 1995, which was a Wednesday. And we still have no idea exactly what Timothy McVeigh did that day. There's a lot of people that have created some different scenarios that may have played out. The first scenario that may have played out, according to McVeigh's autobiography, American Terrorist, says that Timothy McVeigh woke up from sleeping in the truck overnight, so the moving truck that has the bomb in it, and then left Ponca City in Oklahoma at 7 a.m. after making an executive decision to move up the timing of the bombing. According to another book called Secrets Worth Dying For, scenario two plays out where Timothy McVeigh drives with this John Doe number two, this unknown individual who's in the passenger seat of the Ryder truck after leaving the warehouse in Oklahoma City around 8 a.m. And at 8.45 a.m., McVeigh stops to ask for directions at a tire store. And the employee that reportedly spoke with Timothy and this second mystery man in a baseball cap in the passenger seat of the truck states that, he was asked for directions for a downtown address six blocks away. The guy wearing that baseball cap hat was wearing a Carolina Panthers hat. Right. And then again, the officials say that when they went back and talked to this individual who was wearing this Panthers hat, who's being associated with Timothy McVeigh in this particular scenario, was not involved in any way. So that's the thing about it is there's a lot of 
people that are saying that this is what happened and that person was involved. But then again, there's no proof as far as we know that he was. It's really hard to say. What we do know about Timothy McVeigh's activity this morning was that the rider moving truck that he was driving was seen in a series of video images from cameras that were on the Regency Towers apartment building, which was only 500 feet away from the Murray Federal Building. And according to the images, at 53 seconds past 8.56 a.m., the truck was seen coming up 5th Street towards the Murray Building before stopping in front of the Regency Towers. The next 22 seconds captured nine more images of the truck. At 15 seconds after 8.57 a.m., the truck continued towards the Murray Federal Building, now a block and a half away on the other side of the street. And then three seconds later, the truck was out of sight. And it was at this point that Timothy McVeigh then went into the back of the truck, lit two fuses, and then parked the truck in the handicap zone in front of the Murray building, locked the truck, and then calmly walked away in the direction of the nearby YMCA building. I can't even fucking believe that a human being is capable of doing this kind of shit. Like fully knowing that what they just did is about to just destroy a bunch of human lives. It's absolutely insane. And he just casually walked away. Obviously trying not to raise suspicion because I mean if he started taking off running at that point, people would be like, "What the hell why is this guy running away from this truck?" Right. And and speaking of running away from the truck, there was a military recruiter in the building at the time who did see Timothy pull that rider truck up and when Timothy got out, the recruiter could see, "Oh, you know, he has a a shaved haircut." you know, like someone in the military yeah, would have. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he saw that and he was just thinking Timothy was just moving some stuff into the building. He found it very odd that once Timothy did park the truck, which was in a, like a no parking area, yeah. he just walked away. Yeah. Versus like going inside the building or, exactly. you know, just take off down the street into an alleyway where once he got out of sight, he then started lightly jogging towards his getaway vehicle that he had placed kind of uh, a few blocks away that he was going to take in order to get out of town. But tragically, only a few minutes after McVeigh lit the fuses, the bomb exploded at 9.02 a.m. There's actually a clip, an audio clip that we have that is one of the last clips, I think, or maybe even the only clip that we have of audio from inside the building as the bomb's going off. A group of employees are actually on a conference call and you can hear the explosion in the background. We'll play that for you now. And you'll receive a copy of my proposed recommendation and can attend that board meeting and uh, present your information directly to them. With regard to this proceeding, basically there are four elements that I have to uh, uh, receive information regarding. I can see it looks like part of the building has been blown away. We'll have to bank around the other side so I can get a better view of it. The explosion went off around 9 a.m. and we could feel the explosion in the newsroom of uh, Channel 9 at least five miles from downtown. As the chopper goes around the side of the federal building, wow. look at that shot. Holy it is cow. absolutely incredible. The side of the federal building has been blown off, Jesse. About a, about a third, about a third of the building has been blown away. Uh, this is just devastating. Obviously a terrifying experience to go through. And those that live through it, it changed them forever. 
and some people even reported hearing two blasts. And it's been speculated that the other blast came from an area where the ATF office that we mentioned was holding explosives. And apparently there is evidence and witness testimony to support this because apparently the explosives that were being stored there were being illegally stored. So I don't know if this is true or not, but there may have been even a second blast in addition to the one from the truck. Now, if you've never seen pictures of the Murray building after McVeigh's bomb went off, it's terrifying because the bomb literally took off almost half of the building just completely decimated into just a pile of rubble. And it even made a giant hole in the ground where that truck was sitting. Yeah. I don't know how many feet, but it was definitely a lot. It was huge. It was like a crater that it left behind. Cause I mean, it's crazy that he was able to create such a powerful bomb that was able to destroy literally half of this giant building. I mean, this is a huge building that is the Murray federal building. And there's a lot of news coverage of it out there you know, video footage of what the scene looked like. I mean, it was just smoke everywhere, ash. It was such a big explosion that the parking lot across the street, all the cars caught on fire and it was just an absolute disaster. Nobody could believe what had just happened. I mean, in Oklahoma for something like this to happen, nobody ever dreamed that something like this could ever happen in America in general, but in Oklahoma, especially. So the government building housed a bunch of different offices in it, including Social Security Administration, the DEA, Secret Service, and the ATF. It even had a daycare center within it as well. And where the the bomb went off, it was 50 feet away from that daycare. That's fucking crazy. And obviously did a ton of damage to the poor children that were there and all the people that were in that area of the building that day. And while the chaos is just unfolding and first responders are rushing to the scene to try to save anybody that they can and firefighters are rushing to put out fires and the police are trying to get everybody away from the building because they had no idea what had just happened. They had no idea if there was another explosive or another bomb potentially in the building. I know that they were super worried that at one point they found another device that they thought was an actual another bomb but it just turned out to be like a dummy explosive from the ATF's office. But it was constant fear this entire time that they're trying to figure out what had just happened and who was responsible for this. And all the meanwhile, Timothy McVeigh is just casually trying to get away. He's jogging to his getaway car. And approximately 90 minutes after the bombing, Timothy McVeigh is on I-35, approximately 20 miles from the Kansas border when he was actually pulled over by an Oklahoma Highway Patrol officer for not having a license plate on his vehicle, which I'm like, out of your your whole mastermind plan, you didn't even think about maybe my getaway car should have a license plate? Makes no sense whatsoever. And when the officer pulled him over, he noticed that Timothy had an actual weapon concealed within his coat or jacket or shirt, whatever he was wearing, and didn't have a permit. And that, along with no driver's license as well as no vehicle registration, they booked him into the county jail. And at the time, police did not have a suspect yet for uh, the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, So that officer who did take Timothy to jail just had no idea he was the one. Yeah, that's what's so crazy about is little did he know that he was literally arresting this terrorist. They had no idea who he was for a long time because no license. And obviously he's trying not to give up who he is because he knows that 
once they figure out who he is, he's done for. But all the meanwhile, the law enforcement has no idea who just bombed this federal building. And so they're starting to search through the rubble, trying to figure out what exploded and trying to hopefully trace anything back to the potential suspect. I just want to give credit to all those first responders who arrived to the scene and how brave they were and just getting right at it and trying to save as many people as they can. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's one story that just like completely shook me. A surgeon was brought in because they found a woman that was trapped. There was a beam like over her leg and they were really worried about, you know, getting her out of there and and in order to get her out safely, this surgeon or doctor was brought in and he had to do an amputation with no anesthesia or anything like that in this rubble, like in this area that could collapse on top of them at any point in time. And the fact that he was able to, to do this and risk his life to save this woman and same with all these other firefighters, police officers, search and rescue EMS people really came together to try and, and, help as many people as they could and save as many people as they could. I can't imagine how terrifying it was for those first responders while they were searching for anyone that they could find either buried beneath the rubble or just stuck in places. And they did mention that they could hear those people in the building screaming and crying and and calling for help. Yeah. But they couldn't see them. And there were so many of, of those voices that, it was very overwhelming for those first responders to get to everybody they could. They didn't know if there was one person calling for them that they could die like in the next minute or so. Yeah. yeah. So how, how quickly they had to go through that. It's also important to remember those who did lose their lives in this horrible, horrible event, as well as the people that did survive. I mean, people are, are never going to be the same after you go through something like this. But the scariest part about this event at this particular point in time is the fact that there is no suspect and the authorities have no idea. They're having to tell the public that we have no idea who's behind this at this point and we're still investigating and trying to figure this out as quickly as possible. So the following day on April 20th, 1995, the rear axle of the moving truck was found and based upon a unique identifying number on the actual axle itself, they were able to trace it back to a body shop in Junction City, Kansas which was a rider truck rental facility that worked on the rental truck that was used in the bombing. However, when they went to look and see who actually rented this particular truck, it was a person by the name Bob Kling. And it was at this point that the FBI interviewed the employees of the shop in order to try and figure out what this person might have looked like in order to make a composite sketch of their potential suspect. And once they had the composite done, the FBI went around the town showing this sketch to everybody And the man in the sketch was finally identified by an employee from the Dreamland Motel. And they were able to identify this man as none other than Timothy McVeigh. Because even though he was already in police custody at this point, because he had been arrested by the Highway State Patrol, it took the FBI three days in order to track him down. And it didn't take long for authorities to identify Terry Nichols as being involved in the bombing plot. And he was arrested after confessing to his involvement shortly after the investigation of timothy mcveigh was extremely intense and it ultimately included over twenty-eight thousand interviews 2,000 agents and over forty-three thousand investigative leads which all of those were pursued with over three tons of physical evidence obtained traces of the same chemicals that were used in the bombing were also found on timothy mcveigh's clothing 
as well as a business card with the words TNT at $5 a stick. Need more? And as a part of their investigation, they did a very thorough five-hour search and examination of his abandoned vehicle, and they were able to put all the pieces together and clearly come to the conclusion that Timothy McVeigh was their prime suspect, and then that just got solidified even more when he ultimately confessed to it. And the authorities did not stop with Timothy McVeigh. They went and looked at all of his connections as well, and they actually raided Terry Nichols' home, and they found a cordless drill that matched a drill used in a prior robbery, as well as the receipts for a fertilizer and a phone card. And then when they looked into the phone card, they discovered that calls were made to racetracks, chemical companies, and as well to Michael Fortier. So very clearly connected into this bomb plot and obviously arrested for this. So at this point, McVeigh's been arrested, he's been identified, he's confessed to the bombing. And on August 11th, 1995, Timothy McVeigh was indicted on 11 counts of murder eight of which were for the police officers that lost their lives, use of a weapon of mass destruction, conspiracy to use a weapon of mass destruction, and destruction with the use of explosives. And for his trial, 2,700 victims were notified that they could speak at the Oklahoma City bombing trials. However, only 16 mothers, wives, daughters, and grandfathers decided to speak about the effect that this tragic event had on their lives. And what's interesting is that on February 20th, 1996, they actually changed the location for his trial, and his case was transferred from Oklahoma City to Denver, Colorado. And after being transferred, the trial began on April 24th, 1997, just five days after the two-year anniversary of the bombing. McVeigh's approach to his trial was for his attorneys to use a necessity defense, which is basically a defendant who admits to committing what would normally be a criminal act, but claims the circumstances justified it with his main reason being that he was in immediate danger from the United States government. But with that being said, his lawyers disagreed with him and declined to use that defense. However, they did end up discussing how the incident at Waco caused much fear and anxiety in Timothy McVeigh, and they even showed the jury a very controversial video titled Waco the Big Lie, which I believe is the film that has the footage of what they believe is the ATF setting fire to the Waco compound. And during the trial, Michael Fortier acted as a prime witness for the prosecution. He testified that he was aware of the plan to bomb the Murray Federal Building and even helped Timothy McVeigh case the building. However, it was Timothy McVeigh who took full responsibility for the bombing itself, and he would even later state that he held no bad feelings towards Fortier and even expressed remorse for the effects the bombing had on Fortier's life. Which is very interesting that he seems to stick by Fortier's side because he essentially told the court everything. In fact, he stated, on December 15th and 16th, I rode with Timothy McVeigh from my home in Kingman, Arizona to Kansas. There I was to receive weapons that Timothy McVeigh told me had been stolen by Terry Nichols and himself. While in Kansas, McVeigh and I loaded about 25 weapons into a car that I had rented. On December 17th, 1994, I drove the rental car back to Arizona through Oklahoma and Oklahoma City. Later, after returning to Arizona, and at the request of Timothy McVeigh, I sold some of the weapons and again, at the request of McVeigh, I gave him some money to give to Terry Nichols. Prior to April 1995, Timothy told me about the plans that he and Terry Nichols had to blow up the federal building in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. However, as soon as I found this out, I did not make this information known. He went on to say that even though he did have this knowledge of McVeigh and Nichols' plot, he did not notify any judge or other persons in civil authority. He said when FBI agents questioned me later about two days after the bombing and during the next three days, I lied about my knowledge and concealed information. 
For example, I falsely stated that I had no knowledge of plans to bomb the federal building. I also gave certain items that I had received from McVeigh, including a bag of ammonium nitrate fertilizer to a neighbor of mine so the items would not be found by law enforcement officers in search of my residence. Another person that testified against Timothy McVeigh, although hesitant at first, was Timothy McVeigh's younger sister, Jennifer. In addition to his sister, his mother also testified on his behalf, stating, I cannot tell you about Tim McVeigh, the son I love, any better than it already has been told the last three and a half days. He was a loving son and a happy child as he grew up. He was a child any mother would be proud of. And even at the trial, after knowing what he had done, she still was not able to accept that her son had done the heinous acts that he did. She said, I still to this very day cannot believe he could have caused this devastation. There are too many unanswered questions and loose ends. He has seen human loss in the past and it has torn him apart. At the end of his trial on June 2nd, 1997, Timothy McVeigh was convicted on all 11 counts of murder, conspiracy, and using a weapon of mass destruction. And on June 13th, 1997, he was sentenced to death. And despite most inmates waiting an average of 15 years on death row before being executed, Timothy McVeigh was executed by lethal injection just four years later on June 11, 2001. As for his accomplices, Terry Nichols was indicted on August 11, 1995 and charged with murder and conspiracy charges. And his trial began on November 2nd, 1997 in Oklahoma. Michael Fortier also served as a key witness in Terry Nichols' trial as well. And on December 23, 1997, Terry Nichols was convicted on federal charges of conspiracy and eight counts of involuntary manslaughter. On June 4, 1998, Terry Nichols was given life in prison with no chance of parole. However, on May 26, 2004, he was later found guilty in an Oklahoma state court on 161 counts of murder. He is currently serving 161 consecutive life terms in Florence, Colorado, and he has no possibility of parole, which is exactly where he should be, in my opinion. I think he should absolutely be in prison for for life. Now, Michael Fortier, on the other hand, this is some this is crazy. So Michael Fortier initially lied to FBI investigators stating that he didn't have any knowledge of the bombing. However, he told his friends that he hoped to get a cool mill from selling a book and movie rights to his story. He also stated that if he was ever called to testify in court, I will pick my nose and wipe it on the judge's desk. The fuck, man? What a terrible human. However, only a few weeks after testifying at Timothy McVeigh's and Terry Nichols' trials, he would later plead guilty. Michael Fortier pled guilty to four counts of transporting stolen firearms, conspiracy to transport the firearms, lying to federal officers, and having knowledge of the crime and failing to report it in August of 1995. Michael Fortier seemed quite remorseful of his actions in court. While reportedly holding back tears, he apologized to the victims and expressed his regret for not reporting Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols' plan to authorities. And they actually made Fortier listen to three hours of stories of blast survivors and victims' families about the effect of the bombing has had on their lives. Children of the victims came forward stating that they were now suicidal. Some were talking about reoccurring nightmares, and others stated that they were no longer able to work. And according to those that were there during this time, they said that Fortier hung his head and cried. So the judge in his case acknowledged that he had provided significant assistance to the government in the trials of Timothy McVeigh, and Terry Nichols. However, he would ultimately reject Fortier's defense plea for leniency and ended up being sentenced to 12 years in prison. He was also ordered to pay $4,100 in restitution to the Arkansas gun dealer that Terry Nichols stole from in order to finance the bombing. What's crazy is Michael Fortier was released after only 10 and a half years and was immediately enrolled into the witness protection program, which obviously upset a lot of people. 
What do you think about that? Do you think he should have gotten a harsher sentence for his role and not telling the authorities about the, the plot? Absolutely. He should have been given the same punishment as Terry Nichols. He assisted with the whole plot, uh, so he should have been treated accordingly. Absolutely. I agree. I think he absolutely should have gotten life in prison, and to only have to serve 10 and a half years is a, is a disgrace, honestly. So at the end of the day, the biggest question here is why? Why would Timothy McVeigh do something like this? And why would he target innocent people, men, women, and children who ended up having to lose their lives because he wanted to make a point? One of the important clues in the investigation in this event came when law enforcement started to think about what day it was that this bombing occurred. And once they realized that it was April 19th, they quickly realized that that was also the day of the Waco incident. It was at that point that they started to realize that this was probably not some type of foreign domestic attack, but in fact, most likely it was a domestic attack related to the Waco incident. This is the most common belief among law enforcement and those that study this event, that Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols decided to commit this horrific domestic terrorist attack because of their distrust in the government following the Ruby Ridge and Waco incidents. That ultimately, at the end of the day, they were so fearful that the government was going to turn against them and take away their weapons that they decided it was time for them to fight back. Some of the other pieces of evidence that support Timothy's hate and distrust with the government included a, a bumper sticker that was actually on his getaway car, which read, when the government fears the people, there is liberty. When the people fear the government, there is tyranny. And underneath the bumper sticker, Timothy McVeigh wrote, maybe now there will be liberty. And not only that, but the t-shirt Timothy was wearing on the day of the bombing depicts a picture of Abraham Lincoln with a quote that John Wilkes Booth made after the assassination. Six semper tyrannis, or thus ever to tyrants. Which to me, this just goes to speak how much he truly hated the government, how much he feared the government. Definitely plays into the belief that this was his motive for striking back against the government and doing this bombing altogether. At the end of the day, we have to remember those that died in this tragic event. Rescue crews actually spent 13 days attempting to recover survivors as well as the remains of the deceased, but that eventually paused on May 5th, 1995, in which a large memorial was held at the Murray Building. And by 1997, the remainder of the Murray Federal Building was torn down and the Oklahoma City National Memorial was built in its place. I only got to see the temporary memorial that was built, but they eventually made a really, really beautiful memorial that's open 24-7. The memorial that they made for these victims is truly beautiful. There's a reflecting pool. They made a field of 168 empty chairs made from glass, bronze, and stone. And each victim of the bombing has their own dedicated chair with their name etched into the glass base. And the chairs are lined up in nine rows to symbolize the nine floors of the building, and each victim's chair is assigned to the row according to the actual floor of the building they worked on. I wish I had gotten a chance to see this, but we left Oklahoma before this was completed, but I would love to go back to Oklahoma and actually go through this memorial because it looks truly beautiful and a, a perfect place to remember those who, who died in this tragic event. But with that being said, we'll go on and wrap up today's episode of Lights Out Podcast. Let us know what you thought of this episode. It's definitely a different type of episode that we've done so far. And yeah, I mean, I think it's important to cover some of these dark events. I know it's sometimes hard to listen to, but it's a part of our history and it's important to remember the victims and those that were affected by the Oklahoma City bombing. 
Thanks again for listening to the podcast. And until next time, lights out, everybody.